Welcome to the Education Development Trust Brighter Futures podcasts. I'm Tony McAlevey, Education Director, and today we're going to focus on the story of the developments in support for teachers in, in England, which I think is a story of international significance. Uh, the model is quite new, but I, I, I think people worldwide will find some aspects of it particularly interesting. It's a topic that we're uh, about to publish a report about and I'm delighted to be joined by two experts who've been at the thick of it in terms of the recent changes by Professor Sam Twistleton from Sheffield Hallam, Director of the Sheffield Institute of Teaching and by my colleague from Education Development Trust, uh, Dr Nikki Platt, who is Lead Education Advisor. I wonder, before we dive into the issues to do with the support for teachers in England, Sam and Nikki, if you could just maybe say a word or two about yourself, your your background and your current role. Maybe you first, Sam. Thanks. Well, that gives me the opportunity to say I'm Director of Sheffield Institute of Education, not Institute of Teaching, which is about to mean something completely different in the English context. So all that means is I'm in charge of the bit of the university Sheffield Hallam that kind of points towards schools in terms of all forms of teacher development, teacher research and the wider workforce. My background was I came into the profession as a primary school teacher many years ago and then have worked one way or another in teacher development ever since. A huge privilege to uh, work in that field and um, the relationship with Education Development Trust partly came about as a result of me being in various advisory roles for the DfE including probably the most relevant to this discussion is being a member of the advisory group for the teacher recruitment and retention strategy which everything we're going to talk about today links to one way or another and through that those discussions and all the kind of people I got to meet as a result of it getting very very interested in how we support and retain teachers in the profession at every stage but particularly in the early career phase. Fantastic thanks thanks Sam and and Nikki. Tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, so I mean, I've worked at Education Development Trust for about three years now. Prior to that, so I started off, I guess, 100 years ago as an English teacher. Then I worked as an academic for a while and also in educational publishing. So I spent a lot of the time traveling the world and helping countries um, embed new curricula and develop their own educational materials. So I had a, a wonderful time experiencing lots of different cultures. But recently, I've actually just been working back in England and it's uh, it's been a real eye-opener, actually, to, to work really closely with, with our own government and to work really closely with higher education institutes like, like Sheffield Hallam and to work with uh, Sam's team. Done a lot of work together on the Early Career Framework and more recently on the National Professional Qualifications, which I'm sure we'll come to talk about soon. Fantastic. Well, thanks, uh, Nikki, and, and thanks, Sam, for finding the time for today. So the situation in England now is that we have in place a series of so-called framework documents that are intended to provide a, like a systematic context, as I understand it, for teacher support, teacher professional learning from the beginning of uh, initial training through to career development. So these framework documents, they're rather important. So I wonder, Nikki, if you could explain a bit more about these key documents, the roles they cover, and how they're structured. Yeah, okay. So 
I suppose the um, the driving imperative behind the framework documents is the Department for Education's vision to, to build a, a world-class system of teacher development. The strap line for this is there are no great schools without great teachers and that teachers are the foundation of the education system, which does sound quite obvious, but actually when you start to think through the, the ramifications of that, really, really important. So part of the driver behind this was the teacher recruitment and retention strategy, which was published back in 2019. Obviously, like, like a lot of countries across the world, England was suffering from a problem of you know recruiting the best teachers and then retaining them quite significant levels of dropouts in the first five years of teachers' careers, and then a kind of hollowing out, often in, in the middle stages of, of teachers' uh, career development. So when teachers are, are getting a little bit fed up in the, in the middle of their career and, and leaving the profession and taking with them all that incredible experience and expertise that they built up. So a major driver was, was to try and stop this happening by creating what the DfE call a golden thread. And that golden thread is a teacher development system that goes, if you like, from cradle to grave of, of a career. So starts off by really supporting teachers as they begin their journey in initial teacher education or initial teacher training, and then takes them right the way through their early careers, that really tricky first few years where they're going to need a lot of support, where, where the learning curve is at its steepest. Then through their, their specialist classroom roles, then through middle leadership, potentially senior leadership, and for, for those who wish to, taking it right up to the top level of executive leadership. So supporting teachers and leaders at every stage of their, of their career. So the framework documents, I mean, they're, they're not the most exciting reads, if I'm honest. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, if you suffer from sleep deprivation, quite effective. But, but what they do is, is so important because... They've taken all the all the, uh, the latest and, and best and most agreed evidence, it's not always the same thing, but a consensus uh, from across the system of what people need to know and what they need to know how to do. So the kind of declarative factual knowledge of know that and the procedural knowledge of know how to. That the frameworks take all those and then they look through the particular lens of, you know, what does the teacher need at this stage of their career and in, in whatever specialism it happens to be. And they create a set of statements. So you need to know this and you need to know how to do this. And so they're, they're not a curriculum. We have to develop our curricula off the back of those frameworks. But they are a kind of a blueprint, I suppose, for what every teacher needs to know and know how to do at that relevant point. And then it's up to providers like us to turn those framework documents into curricula and sets of materials to give the teachers the resources they need. A final point, just, just on, on this kind of introductory bit, I suppose it's really important to understand the role of the Education Endowment Foundation in all this. So originally the, the frameworks are put together by an expert group of, of people right across the sector. So we have academics, we have school-based practitioners, um, we have various policy advisors who come up with the initial ideas for the frameworks. And then everything gets independently reviewed by the Education Endowment Foundation to ensure that the frameworks draw on the best available evidence. So nothing gets through without being, without being vetted and really discussed and, and agreed by, by the committees. Great. Thanks, Nikki. That's really, really helpful. It's interesting what you're saying about this consensus around the idea of, you know, no great schools without great teachers. 
because that hasn't always been the emphasis, has there? There's been, in policy terms in England over the last few decades, maybe a greater emphasis on accountability and autonomy rather than support for great teachers. And uh, maybe we're beginning to redress that imbalance and we need these different components. Sam, Nikki's just been talking about the, the, the development and the the expert panels and so on. I think you've been quite close to that. Can you tell us about the the evolution of the frameworks from your perspective? Yeah, so I didn't actually sit on the early career framework group, but I did get involved sort of behind the scenes. And then I was asked to chair the core content framework, which was the kind of equivalent framework, but for ITT. And exactly as Nikki has described, really, the, the ECF came first and it started its life being a very big much, much bigger document than it is now. And I think it was understood, looking at it, that it was maybe unrealistic in terms of what you could really roll out as a national entitlement. But much more importantly than that, also looking at the evidence space and making sure that everything that's in there, particularly in that know that column, has a robust evidence base underpinning it. That doesn't mean it's definitive and it doesn't mean it's not going to change and it doesn't mean that all the evidence that matters is represented there. It certainly isn't. But I think the fact it went through that very rigorous process and actually in a quite painful process of of some things being, being weeded out that just weren't felt to kind of meet that test means that what we've ended up with now does have a pretty firm basis, but also there is a commitment that it will continuously be looked at and evolve over time because obviously evidence is not a static thing and particularly as we learn more and more about what's working in these frameworks we will learn more and more about you know what needs to underpin how we support teachers at every stage of their career. Great okay well look you've both mentioned the significance of the EF, the Education Endowment Foundation and I think people internationally may not know much about it but it's quite an interesting feature of the the English system, that there is an independent, it's a non-governmental body tasked with, if you like, kind of organizing, codifying the best available evidence uh, in general to help uh, help schools, and that they've had this particular role in the evidence base for the, the key framework documents. Sam, do, do you think that the, the role of the EF plus the practitioner panels has contributed to a degree of buy-in, if you like, from the profession that maybe wouldn't be there if it was simply, you know, some sort of diktat from the ministry that this is what you should do? I certainly think in terms of practitioners and teachers, that has been enormously helpful. It's been a bit more controversial in the academic sector, I would say. And probably this came to the fore, particularly with the publication of the core content framework which is the version of the framework that's for ITT and that's because you know lots of initial teacher training happens in universities with academics who are doing their own research often you know really high quality research but often very qualitative quite small scale in nature so my own research would come into that category and that would not meet the gold standard test for the evidence base sadly So it's quite controversial because academics will feel like some relevant research that they know they use to underpin how they develop teachers would not be included in that EEF kind of evidence base because it's not large scale, quantitative, often sort of generated by RCTs. And, you know, I think some useful debate has happened on the back of that. And I think probably the EEF would be the first 
to agree. I mean, Becky Francis, the CEO, was actually on the group that I chaired that, you know, the, the RCTs aren't the only relevant kind of uh, evidence that we should attend to and we shouldn't dismiss things that are qualitative in nature. But you've got to sort of set the bar somewhere and that that's where they set it. So I wouldn't, I think you're right, there has been a certain amount of buy-in, but I wouldn't say it's across the board and I would say it's probably more controversial in academic circles maybe than... Okay, so well, there's an interesting issue there, that, that, that tension maybe between what the, the Department for Education has been doing with the EF and the, the, the universities. Maybe we can return to that. I think it's really interesting what you say more generally, maybe. It's an example, really, of a, a very interesting debate, isn't it, about the role of evidence. So most people would sign up to the proposition that it's uh, it's a good idea to be for for teaching to be an evidence informed profession comparable to the the medical professions. That sounds like a good idea. The question is how <laughs> and what evidence. And I think you've highlighted a really interesting uh, difference of perspectives between the EEF that, as you say, has tended to, if you like, privilege a certain kind of evidence, particularly that based on quantitative randomized controlled trial studies. Uh, and, and make less use, not not in the same way, make use of the the more qualitative work. So part of an interesting debate, I think, about uh, about the, the role of, of of evidence in in, in education. Yeah, it, it, sorry to put in, but you know, one 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 of the things I like about how I think all the frameworks are beginning to be implemented now is that there's a level of criticality that's mm. that that they're intended to bring with them. And, you know, to be an effective practitioner, you need to be aware of these debates. You need to be aware that the evidence doesn't normally give you one definite conclusion, that actually education is so complex with so many different variables that it can point you in some in some general directions, but it can't give you the precise answer for the, the class in front of you with all the, their particular variables that day. And I think it's important that these frameworks are rolled out in a way that supports that kind of thinking. That doesn't mean that we don't try and help practitioners to know how to behave and what actions to take, but they need to do it within that kind of framework of complexity and recognising there isn't a formula. But, but that's really rich, isn't it? That because that's, that's an impressive form of professionalism, what you're talking about, whereby folks have access to the best available relevant evidence. But they're not just technicians, if you like, who you know slavishly follow the evidence-based script. They're people who are using that and using their judgment and looking at the unique situation in front of them. Exactly. Exactly that, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sam, you talked earlier about uh, the importance of the retention issues. And I think in England, as in almost every country, certainly most countries, you know, getting the talented people to, to become teachers, getting them to stick around in in the profession is, is really important, isn't it? And uh, I think that had something to do with the, the initial focus on the early career framework, because that was like number one aspect, wasn't it, of this reform. Is, have I got that right, that the early career framework was linked to a, a certain concern about retention issues, making sure that we didn't lose teachers in the first five years? Yeah, absolutely. So, when the recruitment and retention strategy was published, it does contain many different elements, not just early career support and development, but that is definitely the, the biggest focus at, at that point and, and, and continues to be a big area of concern because the data were showing very clearly 
that we were losing more and more teachers every year, earlier in their careers every year. And that continues to be a trend. It's, it's improving a little bit, but, but not enough. So it feels like, you know, every year when we recruit more teachers, it's like we're filling a, a bucket that's full of holes because so many are leaving and, and leaving before they even get to that point of, of the experience and expertise that Nikki was talking about. And it's obviously a big waste of money for the government because we're training teachers that we don't then hold, hold on to. But it's also, you know, hugely pro- problematic for learners because um, they're not getting the benefit of that experience. They're getting actually quite a disrupted sort of uh, experience of a kind of conveyor belt of new teachers. So that's that's why the, the that primary focus on the early career was so important. And that does link to actually my, my sort of, my background has been mainly in initial teacher training and that my first big kind of policy experience was being involved in the Carter review of initial teacher training back in 2014 and the biggest finding from that was how short initial teacher training is to meet the expectations of what you're supposed to know once you've been through it actually completely mismatched you know a nine month as it often is for postgraduate trainee teachers nine months two-thirds of which is spent in school to learn all this stuff that you can't possibly really know and yet, because of the accountability in our country, often it felt like expectations were that you could hit the ground running. So so that focus on early career was really trying to extend that initial teacher training into this two-year entitlement to support and development, with the focus being absolutely on support and development, not accountability, not assessment. So it's quite a big deal, really. Yeah. Okay, that's really interesting the way you've just described it. So just to recap on that... So a, a one-year preparation in the form, for example, of a postgraduate qualification in teaching, it's not enough. And in other you know, top professions, there will be a greater investment in folks in the early stages of their, of their career. So the, just to recap what you're saying, so the idea is to reframe it really as a kind of three-year program. You have maybe one year in initial teacher training, and then in a systematic way, that's built on in the following two years when you are an early career teacher. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So it's a minimum of three years. I mean, obviously longer if you've trained on a longer route or if you're lucky enough to work in a context where it continues after the first two years after you've qualified. And it, so it was absolutely to do that. I mean, on, on the Carter Review, we did actually find quite a lot of examples where that was happening locally. So groups of schools, you know, Matt maybe uh, might, might be providing that kind of ongoing support and development, but it wasn't visible and it wasn't there as an entitlement. In fact, the fact that it was there for some just made it all the more stark that it wasn't there for everyone. So what these policies have done have bring them in as an actual legal entitlement. So you're entitled to this support, but also made it extremely visible because the other thing that um, the DFE research showed was that graduates in considering what, what profession to go into, you know, if they looked at something like, I don't know, accountancy or law, they could see really visible pathways that included the support, the development, also the things that they needed to do uh, every step of the way and the choices that they had to make. And that wasn't really there for teaching. So hopefully that's what the ECF, the core content framework and the MPQs between them are, are trying to sort of add up to that kind of a package of entitlement and pathways that are visible and clear to anybody who's wondering whether the teaching profession is for them. Great. Okay, thanks. Well, maybe we could... Uh drill down a little bit in, into that two-year support uh, program. Nikki, can you tell us a bit more about what it looks like? What, what's the entitlement for teachers in their first two years now in England? 
Okay, so I, mean, I think just focusing on that word entitlement is, is really important. And I have to say this has caused some confusion across the system because once uh, a teacher has left and, and completed their initial teacher education, it's normally a, a year, not always, sometimes they do an undergraduate degree. But once they've done that, they then enter a kind of probationary period. They have an induction period, which is assessed. So they have to meet the teacher's standards by the end of uh, what used to be one year um, and, and now is two years. However, the early career framework sits alongside that. So it's not an assessment framework. And this, although it's a great idea in principle, <laughs> this has caused some confusion across the system because you have teachers being assessed on, on one level against the teacher standards and then also having this incredible entitlement to support, which is based on the same teacher standards and covering the same areas, but sits separately to the assessment routines. And we're going through some teething problems with that, but I, th but I think we'll get there. And I think the idea behind that is really, really important. You know, teachers at the early stages of their career, they don't need any more assessment. They don't need any more pressure put on them. What they need is that really bespoke support in, in their first years to grow in confidence. Yeah, it, of course, it is about knowledge and it is about applying that knowledge, but it's also about you know, developing your own sense of professionalism who you are as a person and as a teacher, um, developing your own feelings of confidence and self-efficacy. So the early career framework, you know, the great thing about it is that it gives early career teachers a mentor, a one-to-one -one relationship with an experienced teacher across the course of two years. And they have weekly meetings with that mentor. And then in the second year, it normally goes to about fortnightly meetings. They get time off timetable and they get loads and loads of training. So a mix, so providers are doing it a little bit differently, but in, in our program, they have two different types of training. They have local group sessions where they work very much in their local area and they can really build up local networks of support and communities of practice. And then they have the kind of big, more exciting regional or national events where they can kind of get above their local area and see this kind of whole world of hopefully an exciting profession. And they can see people who are teaching in their subjects and, and doing things differently. And they can be part of a much kind of bigger initiative and understand quite how important their role is. So we do a mix of, of kind of local and, and bigger stuff. But the absolute key to the early career framework is, is this relationship between an early career teacher and their mentor, because it is so important and so developmental. So actually in our program, what we spend most time doing is, is not actually worrying about the early career teacher, because they're pretty much taken care of by the mentor and by all the resources we've created. And they have like you know, great stuff on the online platforms and all these kind of resources that they can uh, play around with and access and, and, and loads and loads of support. The ones we have to focus on are the mentors because they are the ones who are going to be really nurturing that early career teacher. And it's so important that they have a really in-depth knowledge of the evidence base behind the early career framework. They understand what the whole point of this is, so they're completely brought into it. And that they see being on the early career uh, framework program as a professional learning opportunity of their own. So we spend a lot of time trying to really get buy-in from our mentors. And that's really difficult because they are, particularly with the pandemic, they're a bit tired and grumpy. You know, they've got an awful lot to do. And this is an extra responsibility. And yes, they do get time off to do it. But there's a kind of question about how much time they, they are released for. 
and you know the bandwidth that it takes to come to, to grips with this really important role and a lot of the new learning that they've got to do to, to perform their role to maximum effect. So supporting the mentors um, is going to be an ongoing area of development for us as lead providers and right across the system. That the one thing that we keep saying to our mentors is that we don't want you to turn your brain off at the door. You know, we want to get all your professional judgment, your experience, your expertise. We're not giving you scripted lessons. You know, we're not sitting, we're not making you sit down and work with your early career teacher to, to a script. What we're trying to do is give them resources to guide them and they take those resources, they contextualize them, they make them appropriate for their early career teacher. And most importantly, they keep meeting that early career teacher where they are at all stages of their journey. So we're trying to empower the mentors to really do that effectively. Because in the past, there have been mentor ECT relationships where the mentors have just used time with their uh, early career teachers as an opportunity to see how they're doing. We need something more structured than that. And we need something more evidence-based. But we don't also want to lose that personal relationship and the support. So that's a very kind of quick potted version of, of the ECF. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Nikki. I'm keen to know both from the Sheffield Hallam and the Ed Dev Trust perspective, what our role is, so to speak, in, in the structure. So maybe we can move on to that. But before I ask you that, it's important, I think, to recognise the role of another institution, which is the Teaching School Hub. Sam, can you just explain a little bit about the story of the teaching schools and the, the role of the Teaching School Hubs? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and it's important to, to say Teaching Schools and Teaching School Hubs, because Teaching Schools is what we've had really since since coalition government came in 2010 and the kind of the beginning of the school-led self-improving system, teaching schools were a big part of that. And um, at Sheffield Hallam, we've always worked with a whole load of teaching schools in our area who have played a, a range of different roles in, in relation to CPD, teacher development and so on. Two or three years ago, DfE took a decision to rationalise what was a real plethora of, of, of hundreds of teaching schools all over the place, arguably slightly random, you know, so so we have loads in South Yorkshire, but I know there were very few in Cumbria, for example. So they, they decided to take a more systematic sort of rationalised approach by taking a large number of teaching schools and turning them into teaching school hubs, which is a much smaller number, hopefully still working with some of the the other schools that were formerly teaching schools in their in their region but with a very very definite sort of regional remit so as a teaching school hub you know the region that you're responsible for and within that region there is a number of things that that you're expected to do and being a delivery partner for the early career framework and the mpqs and probably post-market review of initial teacher training a, a role in initial teacher training as well is, is a big part of that. So they are often termed as delivery partners. So EDT in Sheffield Hallam, we work with a range of teaching school hubs. It has to be said, they're not our only delivery partners, I don't think, but they are an important part of the network. And they've been chosen because, you know, they have the expertise, they have the track record, and hopefully they have the networks as well to be able to kind of really effectively deliver this range of programs has to be said from the teaching school hub perspective they've had to take on an awful lot very quickly you know all of these things have come in really at the same time and at the same time as a pandemic you know i feel for them you know nikki was talking about you know some understandably grumpy mentors uh, I, I can't say i've heard 
teaching school helps be grumpy, but I've certainly hear them, heard them be stressed and worried whether they're getting their role right because they're trying to implement so much so quickly. But that will settle down. And it, it is an important part of the infrastructure to make sure that this is really is being delivered, as, like I say, at an entitlement, wherever in the country you are, you should, should be guaranteed that you've got access to this provision. Great. And in terms of the division of labour, if you like, what's the role of the university, your university? I think we had a bigger role earlier on in the in the piloting of the early career framework and in thinking about the resources and trying to take a kind of broad and balanced sort of approach to looking at what the evidence base might might be might look like. So we're very involved in that early on. I'd say we've now got a slightly more lighter touch role. Got one or two colleagues who are helping with delivery, but mainly we're in more of a sort of academic advisory role. Um, I don't know if, that, if that's how you would describe yeah. it, Nikki. Uh, y- yes, I would. Although I think I think it's really important that we we maintain the role of universities in our education sector in England more generally, and it's something that I'm very keen that we don't lose sight of because it's very easy to ask the academics to kind of come in, do the advisory work, and we say, yes, thank you very much, and now we'll crack on with doing what we'd already planned because we have to meet certain contractual requirements. And I think there's an enormous danger that we then veer into something that looks quite transactional and and we move away. So uh, we move away from what what is so important. So, you know, uh, the thing around evidence, you know, the fact that evidence is contestable and it evolves, well... On a day-to-day basis, most of us at the lead provider end, where, where I am, we don't have the time, it's not within our job roles, to be, to be sitting working out what, what evidence needs to change. And we need somebody tapping us on the shoulder and saying, hang on a minute, that's not, that, that's not quite right. The way you're framing that isn't actually going to be particularly helpful. And I think that certainly that role is going to be played by the Education Endowment Foundation to a certain extent, but again, there needs to be pressure on them. And frankly, if the universities aren't involved and properly funded and really active across the education sector, then all this original research starts to dwindle. And then we are left with stuff that's potentially outdated and, and very narrow. We all know that the evidence base is quite patchy. And so, uh, you know, talking about qualitative evidence, so important that we start to bring that in, I think, alongside the RCT evidence. Okay. Well, look, there's a, there's a connection there, isn't there? The two points you're making, and the, there are some interesting debates going on in, in England about getting the, getting the balance right. So there's one debate about the nature of the relevant evidence, if teaching is going to be evidence-informed. And in addition to that, the Teaching School Initiative is based on a view that some of the best schools uh, ought to have a, a leading role, if you like, a key role in teacher development. And, you know, most folks would, would not uh, object to that. But the question is, well, what's the balance? What's the balance, the division of the, the responsibilities between, for example, the, the, you know, the busy practitioners in the teaching schools and the, the researchers and the academics in the universities? So there's some interesting tensions here, which I think are instructive as, as well. Well, look, we're nearly out of time, Sam, and really grateful to you for your time. So maybe some concluding remarks Nikki, any particular observations on lessons so far? You've talked about some of the the teething problems. Maybe there's also some particular facets of the model that you think are quite promising. What would be your parting remarks? I think 
in general, the, you know, the, the Golden Thread Initiative is absolutely transformational. And, you know, I think everybody is really, really positive about the, the, the sheer level of investment going into, into the sector. Um, I think it's how we do stuff now that's so important. I think we need to listen to the schools. Um, we certainly get the schools uh, telling us what they think all the time, which is which is great. We need to support our mentors and we need to give them the, the, the genuine levels of, of time and release to do this absolutely crucial role, both at initial teacher training and education stage and at ECF, early career framework stage. And also going on to the national professional qualifications, we need to be able to really release people to do this incredibly important professional development work for, for their own expertise to develop and, and to then develop the expertise of others. So it's really about you know, putting the funding in place, reducing the workload wherever possible and making sure there's a, a continuing focus on professional judgment and the intellectual endeavor and the creativity that sits behind teaching, not just the, you know, this is how you do it kind of stuff. Fantastic. And, and Sam, some maybe concluding remarks from you. I, I began by talking about how I think the story in England is of international significance. What, what do you think people internationally should be maybe focusing on as they reflect on this, the story in England? Yeah, so I've been sitting here thinking, well, if I'm in an international context, you know, it, it might be quite easy for me to think, well, that's great over in England, but it's not happening here. So, you know, how relevant is it to me? But I think there, there are different levels of relevance depending on what your role is. Even if you're just uh, an early career teacher yourself or or maybe, you know, a, a teacher in an international school, you know, at the heart of this is the importance of mentoring and that can be prioritized within your own role. So could you be a mentor or do you need a mentor? You don't need a big national infrastructure to, to make that happen. I think just making sure that that is seen as a hugely important school improvement tool by talking to your school uh, leadership team about the importance of mentoring and asking whether you can get involved or whether you can be on the receiving end of that is one sort of micro way that you can you can replicate some of the learning from this. If you're lucky enough to work in a group of schools, then actually you can replicate your own golden thread. And I know quite a lot of groups of international schools are doing this already. In fact, you know, some of what's happening in England is learning from that good practice that's existed elsewhere already. So having that golden thread of, you know, often pre-initial teacher training, so often it starts with teaching assistants who then go on to do initial teacher training, then go on to be early career teachers and go on to be mentors themselves and then go on to maybe have roles that specialise and work across the group of schools that you work in. For me, that seems to me a really sensible thing for a group of schools to be making sure they're doing, not only doing, but making it really visible. So when people are wondering whether they want to come and work for you, they can see that their career pathway they can see that there are opportunities that will arise for you that maybe will you know at some point mean that you're not just stuck in your own classroom or your own school you may well be specializing in an area or um, a subject across a group of schools and that might take you into other countries and so on so I think there are different levels at which this can be replicated but at the heart of it as I said it's all about the importance of mentoring and that that can be done in any context with the right will behind it to prioritize it it's well worth the investment is what I would say to school leaders because you're much more likely to hold on to your teachers and make them keep getting better rather than the cost of constantly having to recruit new ones because you're not holding on to the ones that you've already got. Brilliant. Thanks so much. Well, look, we're out of time. So huge thanks to, to Nikki and, and Sam for the time and for their, their insights. 
Thank you to you for listening to this Brighter Futures uh, podcast. Please do look out for the report that we're publishing soon on uh, teacher development in England. And I hope you can join us again for our future podcasts. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to you joining us next time for episode two. If you want to find out more information, head to educationdevelopmenttrust.com.